electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome to Closing Bell. I'm Scott Wapner, live from Post 9 here at the New York Stock Exchange. This make or break hour begins with mega caps moment to sizzle or fizzle. And with that outcome likely to decide the overall market, which way it goes in the weeks ahead, comes as the Nasdaq works on its worst month since last December. And it was getting a lift today, but look at that as we begin the final hour. It is now in the red. Let me show you the scorecard with 60 minutes to go in regulation. Apple certainly helping the markets across the board. That stock looking to reverse its recent slide. Tech was the best sector of the day. No longer, though. Now it's energy and financials. Tech still positive, but taking a bit of a backseat to those other sectors. Oil prices hitting their highest level of the year today. That's proving to be a headwind of sorts for stocks. Rates, they have been too, but look, a mixed picture depending on which end of the curve you look. It takes us to our talk of the tape. The most important trade in the market and its biggest stock. We are talking tech and Apple, which have both looked a bit shaky lately. It's no wonder that stocks overall have been choppy, too. The question is whether that selling in Apple is overdone as the new iPhone hits the market and some on Wall Street suggest orders are already stronger than expected. Let's ask our Steve Kovac. He follows that story, as you know, closer than anybody. So, Steve, what is this? I've read some notes today that seem to be suggesting that this is off to a really strong start. Yeah, and Morgan Stanley put it this way, Scott, quote, better than feared. That's what they said in their note this morning. And they were looking at data from iPhone 15 pre-orders that started just this past Friday, a few days ago. Now, this echoes several other bullish notes on pre-orders today from J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, and Webbush, our friend Dan is saying that, and all pretty much saying the same thing. Early demand appears strong for the iPhone 15 lineup, especially for the Pro models, and even more specifically for the Pro Max, which costs 100 bucks more than it did a year ago. Morgan Stanley saying early demand stronger than it has been in seven years. Wait times are up to six weeks if you try to order an iPhone 15 Pro Max right now, Scott. Even looking promising in China, despite concerns just a couple weeks ago about that reported ban on iPhones for government employees and those new Huawei phones launching in the country. Wait times are actually longer for the iPhone 15 in China than the U.S. Now, that's good news if you're hoping for Apple to return to top-line growth this quarter after three quarters in a row of declining sales. But even if that doesn't happen in the September quarter, better news for next quarter when comparisons are going to look easier after last year's production delays caused by China's COVID lockdowns. And we're going to get a better sense of this, Scott, after the quarter is over and Apple reports those September quarter results. Well, you just said it. This is really what the doctor ordered. Right. I mean, exactly what Apple needed to reverse those trends, which were going in the wrong direction. Yeah, and it's not just that, Scott. We're kind of learning a lesson over the last couple of years here with these pro iPhones. It seems like people like to gravitate towards those models, even though they're more expensive, even though Apple just raised the prices on that top tier Max phone. But that's what Apple does now. They put the best uh, features in those pro phones, and then they trickle down the following year to the, the regular line. So, for example, the iPhone 15, the regular iPhone 15, is better basically last year's iPhone 14 Pro just in a different shell. So if you want if you're upgrading and you want the latest and greatest and best Apple has to offer, it seems like people are gravitating towards those pros. That's good if Apple is going to return to sales growth. Yeah, no doubt. And whether the stock is going to stabilize as well. Steve, thank you very much. Thanks, Steve Kovac.
Kovac covering Apple for us. Let's bring in Anka Crawford of Alger. She's back with us at Post. Nice, nice to see you again. Good to see you. Too. You, of course, have, you know, tech is front and center uh, <laughs> always uh, for you. So Apple's down almost 5% month to date. Um, that's definitely led to a more uncertain and a little bit, I guess, more rocky environment in tech, hasn't it? Yeah, I think the overall market feels a little bit choppier than we've seen for the first nine months of this year. And in part, you know, China that was supposed to work and supposed to come out of COVID didn't come out. Europe, um, admittedly, under in a recession. Um, the U.S. consumer is showing signs of... Um, a little bit more pressure on the consumer. So we're heading into choppier markets, and that's basically just water falling into tech. You guys are underweight, um, Apple, but do you, do you generally feel as though, you know, as Apple goes, so goes the market right now, just because, you know, it's been a market-weighted show mm. for the most part since the beginning of the year. It's the biggest stock in the market. Yeah, I think, I think that there are other stocks that are leading or also, um, you know, uh, flags for the market, whether it's Microsoft or NVIDIA, as well as Apple. I think it's not an Apple-only game this time. Yeah. What about the rest of tech? Um, do you feel it's a little wobbly? Uh, do you think it has the staying power? Do you, do you still feel it's viewed as somewhat defensive that if there is, you know, a bit of rockiness in the market, once things settle out, this is going to be the place to be? Yeah, so as growth becomes more elusive, what we tend to do is, is go towards growth and in part in, in companies that have product cycles. And in part, we do that because that growth is somewhat um, dis, disengaged from the broader economic volatility. So I think because of that and because of this AI story, because of the product cycles that big tech is bringing to the table right now, um, that will act in a more defensive way. What about valuations? Some would suggest that they're still, you're smiling, because I mean, you know everybody's talking about this very question as to whether, you know, where real rates are, whether overall valuations are too rich, and then the front and center, they zone in on tech. And these mega caps that say, well, they're way above their historical averages almost across the board. Yeah, and, and I would counter that by saying, um, which company are they talking about? You take Meta. Last time I was in here, you asked me the same question about valuation. And I said, you know, Meta is cheap. Well, Meta's numbers went up and the stock is 6% lower than it was into the quarter. So the, the stock is still inexpensive, a kind of trading at a mid 15 times multiple on 15% type growth. So the valuations don't necessarily seem that stretched to me. Some of them you have to look out one year out, like in Microsoft's case. Um, but remember, 85% of Microsoft's revenue is recurring in nature. I'm looking at, you know, some of these stocks, you know, over the, the, let's say the last week. I wonder how you feel about Microsoft. Microsoft's not getting a lot of talk um, these days after sort of stealing the show, as it were, with, with AI, until NVIDIA, of course, blew everybody out of the water. But th this idea that, you know, the stock's down 3% uh, over a week, um, hasn't had the greatest move of late. How, how do you look at that now? Yeah, look, I think when you when you think about some of these businesses, you have to take a purview longer than a week, longer than four weeks, longer than a month. And for companies that are up 40%, 200%, 150%, they need time to breathe. And, you know, by, by looking at these stocks on a daily basis, it can actually be confusing for investors. So you have to kind of look at the phrase um, and not kind of the staccato and individual notes. First question you asked me when you sat down was about what stock? Remember? NVIDIA. You asked me, what's NVIDIA doing? <laughs> well, right now, uh, it's red. And, you know, 
It's been a little shaky lately, a little bit. Um, how do you view where that valuation has actually come down? Yeah. Right. Over the last several months, it was, you know, once that company, the last two quarters, once it reported earnings and gave the guidance, it actually on a valuation standpoint got cheaper. Yeah. So NVIDIA on the whisper number on the street today trades at 22 times. That is not a great on 2024. That is not an egregious multiple for NVIDIA. You know, if you if you look at the long only holders, there's a lot of big long only holders that are still underweight the stock. The demand for the stock to buy is still there. I think the whisper on the street is, oh, if it comes in a little bit more, we're going to top up our positions. So, you know, again, I think when a stock goes up 200, 250 percent, we've got to give it time to breathe. And it's healthy for the stock as it consolidates in place. I mean, if you look at the fundamentals for NVIDIA, just last week or two weeks ago, they put up a software update. It doubled their performance. You know, there's no denying the the dominance that NVIDIA has in this market. You own Tesla. It's had a great, it's up 23% uh, over one month. That blows all of the Magnificent yeah. Seven, the other names, uh, out of the water. It's not even close. How do you view Tesla here? So I think Adam Jonas at Morgan Stanley actually made a really good point in his upgrade in that Dojo, which is their AI or their neural net, which is driving FSD, which is full self-driving, is going to be a gateway to all other things AI for Tesla, whether it's humanoids or the robots and and they get into automation or delivery or robo-taxis. There's numerous other things that need vision in order to operate. So if Tesla can figure out FSD, highly likely it throws open the gates to TAMs that are enormous. Yeah, there's a look at the stock, as I said, uh, 23.5% over a month. Quickly on broader market before I expand the conversation, Fed meets this week. What are you, what are you expecting in, in what is, you know, obviously been a historically challenged month for stocks? Some say after you get through quadruple, quadruple witching, the options expiration that we had on Friday, you've got many weeks of, of a rocky market. How do you see things settling out? So as for the Fed, I think they need to just wait and watch as and see how the economy um, unblossoms, per se, um, and the, and the how consumer much reacts, how much it slows. Um, as for as we go into earnings, however, you know, consumer consumer conferences, consumer companies seemed confident um, about back to school. Software conferences, companies seemed confident about their numbers. So as we go into earnings season, I expect that the market will perk up a little bit as the numbers at least stay flat, if not go up. I mean, Secretary Yellen, Treasury Secretary Yellen today on this network. Now, I totally get she's a member of the administration now. She's not the, the, the chair of the Federal Reserve. So she has to project a message that the administration wants to get out. She maintained the economy still strong. And, you know, no sign of, of the consumer fading to, to any degree. Mm. What do you put to that? You know, the consumer is still strong, surprisingly. We've been waiting for the consumer to, to fall out of bed for a while, and the consumer hasn't felt fallen out of bed. Um, however, our job is to anticipate what's going to happen over the next six to nine months. All right. Keith Lerner, <coughs> Truist, uh, good to welcome you to the conversation as well. How do you see things in the here and now? Yeah, hey, great to be with you, Scott. You know, I think we're in this tug of war, Scott. I know that's not, you know, a fun place to be, but there's a lot of cross currents. Our thought, you know, moving into August and really throughout September is we're going to chop around. But as you all have been discussing, we had these big gains in the beginning of the year, 
And the reason why we had those big gains is where expectations were low for the market and we surprised on the economy, we surprised on earnings, and we surprised on inflation. And I think on the near term, there's just a lack of near-term catalyst to really break this out of the range. So what are we doing with that is we're being patient and we're really more in line with our allocations versus you know stocks versus bonds versus cash right now and waiting for an opportunity to present itself. But right now, like I said, we've got to be patient. Yeah, I mean, catalysts you talk about, what, what, are, what are they on the horizon? Earnings? Because we're a little while away still from getting real numbers as expectations have crept up. But the numbers better live up to the hype where the valuation of the market is given rates. Yeah, well, you know, markets can correct in time or price. We're having more of a time correction right here. You know, if you look at earnings, the forward 12-month estimates are at a 52-week high. So they've been relatively resilient. The market valuation has come in a little bit. It's not cheap by any means, but it's, it's reasonable. And I do think the next catalyst is probably going to be the earnings season. But near term, you know, going to the discussion about the Fed, what, what is Jerome Powell going to tell us that we don't know today? Um, I think the market has already shifted towards higher for longer and pushing out rate hikes. I'm sorry, um, rate cuts further out next year. So we're in this chop back and forth. I think as you get moved to a more of an oversold condition to support, that's probably a time to move some money in. And if we have a, an overshoot on the upside, um, maybe sometime, you know, an opportunity to take some money off the table. But in the interim, you know, I think, again, be patient. There's some relative, you know, relative opportunity among the sectors that we can talk about as well. Yeah. Ankur, do you, you think earnings expectations are, are too optimistic? For 2024? Yeah, well, for the rest of this year and 24. I think not necessarily for this year. I think for 2024, they may be. Um, which also will lead us to a choppier market. Now, there are some that expect that earnings are going to be down 10 to 15% next year. I'm not in that camp. I think we're going to have a softer landing than that, anywhere from up 0 to 5% versus up 10. What about for the remainder of this year? Because they, they have sort of, you know, they've gone from three consecutive quarters of negative earnings growth. Now we're positive. They get even richer as you get into the fourth quarter. And then, as you said, into 24, they're even more optimistic than that. Yeah, so there's going to be, I mean, as we go through this earnings season, I expect numbers will stay flat to go up. Um, you know, industrial is a little bit weak. If, we, if you look at each sector by sector, again, tech, um, software inside of tech seems okay. Semis, kind of deteriorating. And that's a because it has a global footprint. Industrials feel a little weaker. They have a global footprint. So businesses that have exposure to Europe, China, um, you know, EMEA, those, those guys are all under pressure right now, and I think numbers come down. U.S.-based businesses that are e-commerce, U.S. consumer-led, numbers likely go up. Keith, I mean, Anker's talking directly about a sector you like, being industrial. She's making the case of why you don't want to be there. You suggest you should. Why? Yeah, well, we still like it because I think it has some secular tailwinds. I, I agree that short term has been some weakness, but you do have some secular tailwinds as far as the fiscal stimulus, as far as the, the IRA bill is still going to help them out as far as the infrastructure bill as well. I think the geopolitical landscape is only going to get more challenging. So I think there's going to be multi-year uh, tailwinds for the sector, even though acknowledging some of the short term weakness here. Yeah, but I mean, what, what kind of time frame are you talking about with short term weakness? I mean, if, the, well, if, I, if you expect if you expect the economy, which some do to, you know, continue to, you know, weaken, whether it's at a slow pace or, or not. And you know that China's recovery seems uneven at best and Europe seems like it's weakening. Are industrial stocks with that global play really a, a place you want to be? Not to mention what's been going on with the dollar, too. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fair point. And I'm, I'm saying the near term as far as the, the last couple of weeks and maybe the next couple of weeks as we move through this shop. But even as we move into year end, I still like the sector. And talking about China, I think right now expectations are so low in China that they continue to have this drip 
coming in as far as these small stimulus measures. And that likely will help at least firm some of the global economy. Again, we're not looking for something robust. And then you add on to that as far as some of the the, the trickle on as far as the stimulus. I think it's a it's an interesting sector. And again, the defense spending. So. Yes, by year end, we expect it to still be an outperformer from where we are today. You like discretionary, too. And I always I feel like we need to be careful when we talk about that sector, because, you know, Amazon and Tesla, as I was just talking about with Anker, can sway the performance of the whole entire sector. Are you, are you suggesting to buy it broadly or how, how would you how would you go about that? Well, I think to your point, I mean, we're not bullish on the, you know, the deep retailers. I think as you look at that sector, we call it a quasi growth sector. So I think with the areas that we like within the discretionary are more of that growth uh, component. You know, I don't recommend individual stocks, but the growth, as you mentioned, as far as the Teslas and the Amazons, we think are better relative performers from a sector standpoint relative to the retailers where we've seen, you know, some weakness. And we expect that likely continues as the compounding of these higher interest rates, student loans and some of this reduction in excess savings weighs on the sector. So, yes, it's a bifurcated sector. Yeah. Ankur, last word to you. Uh, Rising oil prices, highest level of the year um, today. Energy is going to wake up. Is it in the process of waking up? Uh, I think it's woken already. Um, you know, we are we are overweight energy, which is unusual for a growth manager. And in part because it's there's a big change going on in the oil sector. Um, we think that it's going to be supply constrained, um, not necessarily a demand equation anymore. It's all on the supply. So we think it's, you know, higher energy prices. All right. Good to see you as always. Anker, thank you. Anker Crawford. Keith, we'll talk to you soon. This is Keith Lerner from Truist joining us as well. Let's get to our question of the day. With the Nasdaq pacing, as I said, for the worst month since December, should you buy mega cap tech stocks on that dip? You can head to at CNBC closing bell on X to vote. The results are coming up a little later on in the hour. Arm shares, they're getting crushed today. Christina Partsinevelos is here to tell us exactly what is going on. Christina. Oh, well, there was a lot of excitement for this IPO last week. And although shares are still over the $51 a share pricing of the offer, not everyone is impressed with Arm, sending shares down 7%. Everyone being Bernstein right now. They're initiating an underperform rating with a price target of 46 bucks, saying it's still too soon to call Arm an AI winner. And why is that? Well, think of Arm as a coding language and in which companies like Electronic Arts or Apple use to design their own chips. But ARM specializes in the coding architecture for central processing units, CPUs, not the AI graphics chips we keep hearing about. They're also 45% exposed to smartphones, so a, a, a sector that is very cyclical. Hence why Bernstein doesn't think ARM should be called an AI winner because they won't reap the benefits from all that AI spending, unlike, what else, NVIDIA and its GPU chips. Needham also initiating a hold last Friday for the exact same reason, saying ARM has not been able to replicate its smartphone success into data centers and the cloud. So both of those reasons why you're seeing the, the stock drop as of Friday afternoon and today. Yep. All right. Good stuff. Christina, thank you. We'll be back with you in just a bit. We're just getting started here on Closing Bell. Up next, golf legend Fred Couples. He joins us live for the Berenberg Gary Player Invitational Charity Golf Series. We'll get his thoughts on the PGA and Live Golf merger and the future of the game itself. And later, grocery games, Instacart, is set to price today in overtime in the latest test for the IPO market. We'll ask one top BC whether this signals an end to the IPO slowdown and what names could be next. We're live from the New York Stock Exchange. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts 
Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. The Berenberg Invitational kicking off today at the Glen Arbor Golf Club in Bedford Hills, New York, with some of the world's top players competing to raise funds for pancreatic cancer research. Around $1.5 million has been raised in the past two years. They're hoping to cross the $2 million mark this year. One of the players, Golf Hall of Famer and former PGA champion Fred Couples, joins me now. Fred, it's good to see you. Welcome to Closing Bell. Thank you, Scott. Nice to be on. Yeah, it's, um, you know, not the best weather, obviously, to play golf in today, but a great cause, as we said. Um, tell me a little bit more about what drew you uh, up there in New York. Well, I think, you know, I've been with Berenberg about seven or eight years now, and I've been to this every year, and we used to have one in England. Um, and Gary Player is their ambassador, and Gary and I have been lifelong friends, even though I think he's 22 or three years older. But it's a nice, nice spot to be. I, I love all the guys at Berenberg. I'm off the course right now, so it, it's okay for three holes. I'm going to miss to talk to you. But uh, Berenberg does a lot of things that, that I enjoy seeing. As I, I'm, I'm like an ambassador, but I'm a golfer. So I wear the hat. I go play. I do the best I can. Uh, Henrik Reimer is the one who really takes care of me. He's their number one guy, and we've gotten to be great friends. And then the pancreatic cancer side of it is just amazing. And just to my right over here, when we're done playing, we're going to go in and have a dinner and there'll be a little bit of a show and, and some song and dance. And they're going to raise so much money so fast that even I, I leave here shaking my head, Scott. Yeah, well, we wish you the best, obviously, in, in raising as much money as you can. Um, I don't think it's news to anybody. You've been one of the mo most popular players on tour um, for an awfully long time, um, you know, well before you even won the Masters in, in, in 92. So when you speak, people listen to what you have to say. And, and you've been one of the most <laughs> outspoken players, I think, about the, the live tour and the future of that relationship with the PGA Tour. I'm wondering, what, what was your first reaction when you heard of this potential deal between live and the PGA Tour? You know, what a question. I've answered it the same every single time. Um, it affects the PGA Tour immensely, but really what affected me is how these guys leaving, not all of them, some of them, I shouldn't even say five of them, we're talking about the PGA Tour, how bad of a tour it was, how wrong it was, how they're better off playing in the Live Tour. You know, I, I've spent, this is my 43rd year in the PGA Tour. I represent it the best I can. I've played a long time. The Champions Tour, Scott, as you know, is great. But it just offended me that Go play your golf. Go play in your 54-hole events. We all know that's funny to talk about. And sometimes I felt bad about what I said. But, you know, when I talk to other people, I really don't think I said anything horrific. 
I just reacted to what some of the guys that left said. Brooks Kepka, Dustin Johnson. I don't talk to Dustin that much, but Brooks I've kept in touch since this Ryder Cup thing. We laugh every other day about stuff, and I, I have no qualms with 99% of the guys. It affects the tour. I'm no longer on that tour, but what it affected me is just, is just the things they had to say. Do you hope it doesn't happen? I never thought it would happen. I never thought they would get off the ground, but I guess, you know, when you have, I'm not even smart enough to figure out how many billions, you can get people to follow the money. Um, I don't know if it's going to go away, you know, again, Scott, that's a, another great question. I, I'm, I'm so old that I don't, I pay attention to every golfer that plays on the PGA Tour, but when, if it goes away, is that going to be good? I don't know if that's going to be good or not. Can we intertwine? I'm not smart enough to figure that out. Um, I'm sure they will try and do something. But we do have Brooks Kepka on the Ryder Cup team. Um, he's not really a PGA Tour player, and every player on that team wanted him. So we, we still have some, some nice feelings about the live guys. But would I want to see it go away? I, it doesn't matter to me really anymore. If their, their tour is set, they have their 48 guys. I don't think any new guys have joined in five or six months. So it is what it is. You mentioned you're, you know, you're obviously on the Champions Tour, but I know you care deeply about the, the PGA Tour itself. Do you worry about the PGA Tour financially and, and what it's going to potentially be 10 years from now? I never really worried about it until, you know, what, eight months ago when we had no real idea and we're asking tournament sponsors to no longer have a 12 or $13 million event to have a $20 million event. So now you get a company, you know, for five years, if they want to upgrade and so-called get the best players in the world, you know, it's going to cost their company another $40 million. That's a lot to ask. So I, I'm, I'm more of a golfer. You know, I listen to your show. I watch it all the time. I have very interest on that clicker that's going below me. But as far as the money part of it, yeah, I, I think when you're, you know, it's like getting into a fight. If you have a sword versus a gun, you know, you're in big trouble. And they have a lot of money. They went at the tour hard. Uh, we fought back as best we could. And now we're trying to possibly go together. But again, I don't speak with Jay Monahan or the tour on this stuff, but mm -hmm. I, I, I don't really have a voice, but I listen. And I kind of think it's slowing down and their tour is, you know, they're playing in Chicago, I guess this week, because Brooks will be leaving from there. And so I don't watch it. I do see who wins. Uh, I'm entertained by who wins their events, but I'm an all PGA Tour guy. Sure, we, we, fo we followed you, you know, for so many years on the tour. and. You know, I remember obviously you wearing Cadillac, uh, sponsored by General Motors for an awfully long time. And, the, you know, the financial right. crisis obviously had something to do with you not, you know, endorsing General Motors anymore. You're now with Ashworth, which you actually wore, which people might not remember, when you won the Masters in 92. I, and, I and, correct that. Go ahead. No, I was just saying, I'm, I'm curious as to whether, you know, at this stage of your life and your career, you look at endorsements and sponsorships differently than you did, say, 20, 30 years ago. I look for the best fit that I possibly can. And I'm lucky enough that, you know, I still um, have clothes that have sponsors on them. Right now, I think I have whatever side, Fidelity and UKG in Berenberg, uh, and now I'm back with Ashworth. I was with them for close to 30 years. 
Um, it's great to be back. They make unbelievable clothing. I wear the clothing proud. But my sponsors, yeah, are well chosen. You're correct. I wore Cadillac for 100 years, and every year it was a, a done deal with Pete Jarosa. And Pete's still alive and doing well, and he's a very good friend. And I signed with my manager every year. It was a one-year deal, and then it just finally ran out, I think, after 18 years. But yes, UKG, Fidelity, uh, Title, and, and obviously Berenberg, I, mm -hmm. I couldn't ask for anything better for me. Lastly, before I let you go, I, I know you've been pretty close with Tiger over the years. Um, he's spoken so fondly about you. You guys play practice rounds all the time. Do you think, um, you, know, you think he's going to be able to play uh, all four majors next year? Just how do you see the progression from here forward for Tiger? I never asked Tiger any of that, but I've heard from other doctors that said, you know, maybe he had this last surgery so it might not help him immediately, but down the line where he can play four events. Scott, if you've watched, you know, he still plays very good rounds. This year at Augusta, I made the cut and I played. It was so wet, so cold, so sloppy that he just couldn't play 72 holes, which is really, a, it's a crushing blow to us. But to talk to him at night, it's just an emotional letdown for Tiger. So hopefully he can come if he plays the father-son, which we all know and he plays four majors, I think that would be enough for the golfing world. And maybe he might come, Scott, and play a few with us on the Champions Tour. Well, if he plays anywhere, it'd be good to see. Uh, Fred, I appreciate your time so very much. We'll see you soon. Okay, thanks. Keep up the great work. No, I appreciate that very much. Thank you. That's Fred Couples joining us again. A great cause, plenty of little golf, too, on the side of that cause. Straight ahead, don't call it a comeback. Star venture capitalist Rick Heitzman is here. Get his thoughts on the recent IPO market resurgence and which companies he expects to be next in that pipeline. Before we go to break, though, here's a quick message as CNBC celebrates Hispanic heritage. I find that many Latinx grow up in America trying to fit in. And fitting in is very different from having a sense of belonging. This country is what it is in big part of because of our contributions. So owning that, being proud of that, and then looking up to those who have achieved their dreams, it is a big part of leveraging our Hispanic heritage. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Arm shares down nearly 6% today despite an initially successful market debut last week. We're expecting Instacart to set their IPO pricing in overtime during the next hour. Joining me now is First Mark Capital founder, Rick Heisman. Welcome back. Hey, Scott. How are you? Uh, good, thanks. So Instacart, let's look forward. Yes. Uh, and I'll ask you about Arm in a second. Sure. But what are, we, what are the expectations here and what is, is going to be a down round, the way, the way you look at it? Definitely going to be a down round. They raised money at $38 million a couple of years ago. It's going to be down 70%. Wow. But it's structured, so it's going to be a well-performing IPO. So they cut price, they limited the float, and priced it so for a pop. What goes through the mind of a venture capitalist, an investor who got in at 39, yes. and who is sitting there today, just 
put me inside the head. I mean, I, don't, I can't even, I'm, I don't know how you think about that. So there's two versions of venture capitalists, right? They're the people who got in at 24 cents. Yeah, yeah of course. The They're feeling a, really and great. Fine. <laughs> and then there's the guys who did it at 39. The guys who did it at 39 billion are saying, I need to get liquid. I can hold it on my books at some artificial rate, but it, that doesn't do anyone any good. The best thing to do is get the stock liquid, get, get the company In other words, go public. Go public. Go public, because otherwise it's, it's just, you're, you're just waiting, pushing off the inevitable. What does it just suggest about where we were and where we are? and the tremendous reality check that's taken place over the last 18 plus months. We've talked about it for two years. We said, you know, hey, there's going to be a lot of companies who are going to have to face their comeuppance. Even the best performing companies, and we're, we're looking at both Clavio and Instacart this week, they both perform at the top end of their metrics in the SaaS market and the consumer market, and they're both going to take a discount to go public. And then we said the IPO market will not function until people capitulate on value and there's a reasonable reflection of value in that IPO price. And then we also said the first people that go out will be companies with very good metrics, growing nicely, strong margins, profitable. These are, these are Instacart's yeah. profitable. Profitable, growing quickly, great consumer retention metrics, and we'll price at a discount for a pop. So this is the last piece. So it'll get, it'll have to pull buyers, IPO buyers, back into the market. And we saw a little bit of arm, although that's really kind of a false, true IPO. But these two will show how, they are, how receptive those buyers are to the so market. How will that mentality of what you, you described, um, they want to get liquid, like yes. later stage VC people who yes. got in where the valuations yeah. were super rich and now they, they've come down. How is that going to impact the pipeline of other companies that are in the queue and the, the push-pull, some yep. wanting them to go public, get liquid so that they can get out uh, versus waiting for the right time. Well, I, I think the, the, the mature venture capitalists or mature private market investors are going to say, hey, the market is what the market is. So you know, whether, what, what we paid two years ago might not be a true reflection of value. Where the market is today is a true reflection of value. It's in the best interest of the company and even ourselves to let the company trade at a market price, begin to get liquid, return that liquidity to our investors. And if we made a bad investment, if you lose 50 percent, that's okay, but holding out some false hope, I don't think so. Okay. All right, so arm last week, right? Yes. Um, we got Instacart, Clavio, you, you said, and there are many others in, in yes. the queue, and people mention the same names over and over yes. again. So what is the state of the IPO market? Where I, are we? We're all on the edge of our seat. We're all waiting <laughs> for you know the next two couple days. You know, you're pricing uh, Instacart in the next hour. The anticipation is they've already moved up their range. They'll hopefully, we'll price it at the high end of their range. They'll hopefully trade up. And you start getting those signals of a traditional IPO pricing at the high end of the range, pricing in the multiple band, uh, that there's a lot of people with their with their finger on the button of draft to submit their S1 to the SEC. How do you look at the ARM I IPO, right? It, it was successful yeah. that, that day and the, and the day after. Here we have a pullback of some 6% yeah. today. Very small float. Yep. Um, customers participating in, yes. in the, the deal. Was it as good as it seemed on, on the surface because of those variables? And there was also, it's also of size, it's also in the mobile ecosystem. There was a number of buyers that had to buy, so they were able to take advantage of a lot of insider buying or, or ecosystem buying. Sure, Apple very small and some of these other companies. To right. artificially create that pop, but they also pretty fully priced it. So I don't think anybody was expecting that stock to either 
to double or, per, or persist. And it was also a mature stock, not, not growing, priced at you know, 20 plus times revenue, whereas you know, this next wave of companies are more the traditional tech growth stocks. All right, good stuff. Uh, we'll continue to use you as our guide on uh, all things tech and IPOs. Thank you very much. No problem. All right, Rick Heitzman, uh, First Smart uh, Capital joining us once again. Up next, we're tracking the biggest movers as we head into the close. Christina Partsinevelos is standing by once again with that. Christina. Well, a company wants to mass produce flying taxis from Ohio, and that could mean commercial passenger service is around the corner for you and I. I'll explain next. All right, we're about 15 out from the closing bell. Let's get back to Christina Partsinevelos now. For the key stocks she's watching, Christina. Well, Joby Aviation announcing plans to invest up to $500 million to build its first large manufacturing hub. And what do they want to do? Mass produce air taxis from Dayton, Dayton, Ohio, I should say. Joby is working to win Federal Aviation Administration certification for its flying EV aircrafts. So it could begin commercial passenger service in 2025. And that's why shares are up uh, almost 5%. Unity Software is falling, even as it starts walking back the new fee that stoked backlash from developers last week. The company apologized for the fee, which would have charged customers for every installation of a game, and said it would share updates in the coming days, and that's why shares are off 7.5%. Dayton. Christina, all, Dayton. Right. all right, thank you. Christina, Christina Partsinevelos. Last chance to weigh in on our question of the day. We asked, with the Nasdaq pacing for its worst month since December, should you buy the mega cap, mega cap tech stock dip, he tried to say. Head to add CNBC closing bell on X, the results after the break. Question of the day, should you buy the mega cap dip? The majority of you said yes, you should. Buy that dip in tech, 57, near 58% as a matter of fact. Up next, retail stocks getting hit today. We'll tell you what's putting pressure on that group this afternoon. That's just ahead when we take you inside the market zone. All right, closing bell market zone. CNBC senior markets commentator Mike Santoli is here to break down the crucial moments of this trading day. Plus, Diana Olick on what falling home builder sentiment could mean for those stocks. And as we dig into some moves in the retail space, we will talk about that as well. Mike Santoli, uh, to you first, bit of a choppy day. Um, interesting, our poll by the mega cap dip. That is ultimately going to decide in some respects where we go from here, at least in the short term. Yeah, to a large degree. Um, and, you know, whether they... I say, I say I would say earn the status as defensive. That's always the question. Uh, right now, we actually have a bit of a defensive tone in the market. Uh, we have you know cyclicals on, on the weaker side. Banks are down again. Everyone knows it's supposed to be a tough time of year. And I I generally agree that the index is uh, is likely captive to what the largest stocks do in a big picture way. But I'll say coming into today, Apple was 12% off its high. NVIDIA was 12% off its high. The S&P was 3% off its high. There are multiple paths to getting where you want to go. But nine VIX, I mean, move today, right? Yeah. Even with all the concerns out there, if there are said concerns, VIX is up shy of 3%, still yeah. 14. No, I mean, this is just a Monday rebuild of volatility type of move. I mean, when the index is flat, the VIX can't go anywhere. 
I mean, unless there's something really strange anticipated. Uh, also, bond market volatility has really come off the boil, and correlations among stocks and sectors, Goldman had some data on this, it's basically at two-year lows. So when you have correlations low, everything offsets. The index itself does not get swung around on macro moves. Uh, you know, we had one 1% uh, down day last week. It was the first one in almost a month. So there's not going to be a lot of volatility coming out of that type of environment, even if we know it's a tough time of year uh, and we have this sort of late cycle uh, kind of signals that are that are peaking out. All right. Diana Olick, what are we learning about home builder sentiment these days? Well, Scott, look, the builders had been benefiting big time from the low supply of older homes for sale, but high mortgage rates are just killing affordability all around now. And as a result, builder sentiment fell into negative territory in September for the first time in seven months. Mortgage rates went over 7% at the end of June, and they have not come back below that line yet. Today, it's 7.32%. So builders are going back to incentives. 32% said they cut prices in September, and that's compared with 25% in August and the largest share since December of last year. Average discount, 6%. That may be why builder stocks are kind of not taking it so well. The home construction ETF ITV was flat on the day, but in the red for the month. Lennar last week reported strong earnings, but the stock dropped immediately because Lennar reported also lowering prices. So again, mortgage rates really hitting the builders hard. Yeah, no doubt about that. Um, looking at consumer discretionary today, for example, is down 1%. Those are stocks, of course, within that group. Diane Olick, thank you so very much. A number of retail stocks are selling off today. Speaking of discretionary, Gap, Coles, Burlington, among the names that are hardest hit in the session. Evercore out with a note this morning saying it's time to play the space defensively, highlighting Costco and Walmart as some of its top picks. What's your take here? Yeah, Costco and Walmart, of course, are just kind of, when you're worried about the consumer, that's the, that's the place you go. Uh, a lot of things piling up. So we all know everyone's trying to run the student loan repayment restart through their numbers, gasoline prices, where they are. Everything you're seeing kind of pop up seems to move in the direction of it's going to be less to go around for discretionary. Also, intentions for holiday spending, not that encouraging, even though you know, we're a couple of months out. It usually doesn't necessarily follow. I just think it's a tough time right now to feel as if it's this is the moment to start taking risk, even in what look like cheap stocks. Um, you know, coal's down a bunch today. The dollar stores have kept going down, even after they had their post-earnings dumps. Dollar Tree and Dollar General look pretty awful, uh, almost to the point where you wonder if it's finally getting to uh, to a washout state. So. You know, nobody really thinks that unemployment's going to shoot up. It's much more around the edges of we already had front-loading of good spending. Uh, we know the housing-related spending is not necessarily looking like it's poised to take off. Uh, and everything else is like, you know, people traveled a lot. We spent our money where we were going to spend it. On the lower end, you know, if you look at the Bank of America Consumer Credit Weekly Survey checkup, I think things look pretty stable, even though credit card usage is up a couple of percentage points uh, among low-income households, yet still not as high as it was in 2019, right? Everything looks like that. Not as good as it was, but still better than it was before the pandemic. I'm looking at just certain stocks. Uh, Tesla today, yeah. down three and a third percent, uh, just adding to the discretionary weakness, yeah. uh, uh, of course. The other thing, Fed complacency. You, you sense any uh, within the market? Because we pretty much decided, ah, they're not going to do anything in a couple of days. Uh, if there's complacency around the Fed, I don't think it's, uh, you know, basically assuming a hold on Wednesday, meaning I don't think nobody, anyone's going to be surprised about an actual rate move 
whether they change their outlook enough uh, in a way that makes it seem like they need to restart the fight against inflation, uh, whether just things aren't cooperative, uh, and then putting November right back on the table and then suggest it might be one after that, I guess, you know, we might brace for that. But I think they're going to use the luxury of time. And I think that's the Fed's orientation is we think rates are roughly where they're supposed to be, give or take a little bit. Uh, We just want to see what the effect of the amount of time spent at those rates uh, seems to be. So they wish to be done. We do get this, you know, the so-called dot plot of this time around uh, again. So it'll be helpful to sort of get a look at the outlook and wondering whether this rise in oil prices is affecting that outlook by what they think about where inflation is going. Highest level of the year today, north of 91. Yeah, the commentary around that might be interesting because you can play that both ways. You know, obviously all they seem to say they care about is core non-housing services inflation. That's nowhere near fuel. Um, And headline inflation going up, if it detracts from spending in other places, it's not necessarily the scary part. Where it does come into play is inflation expectations. So if they saw the consumer inflation expectations start to go up, that sometimes goes hand in hand with gasoline prices going up at the same time as consumer confidence comes down. uh, That's where it seems like a little bit of a tricky spot. I keep saying $90 oil. We've been here enough times, you know, in a smaller economy. It shouldn't be that big a deal. But the psychological effect probably shouldn't be discounted for that. Your point's well taken, too, about this, you know, what what the Fed is really focused on. You know, they they could make the argument that goods inflation's come down, housing inflation's coming down. It's at non-housing services, which is the sticky part and the real question mark. Mike, I appreciate it very much. That's Mike Santoli, our senior markets commentator. So Dow's green, S&P's green by a few points. We can still settle. So we'll have to see how that goes. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.